Hey everyone, and thanks for listening to this month's segment of Speak Up for a Species, here on A Walk in the Wild Tonight, a veterinary podcast. This podcast is designed to educate veterinary professionals and other animal lovers on all things wildlife, zoo, aquatic, and exotic. Just a reminder, these short segments of Speak Up for a Species are dedicated to share facts about a specific species and highlight diseases or threats they face and what we all can do to help conserve the animals we love. I'm your host, Kyle Kansman, a fourth-year veterinary student at Michigan State University. My best friend and colleague, Maddie Chilcote, unfortunately couldn't join me for this segment with her clinic schedule, but sends her best to all you listening. Today, in honor of Sea Otter Awareness Week, we wanted to highlight the sea otter, an endangered species that has gained quite a bit of popularity because of its big personality, high intelligence, and irresistible cuteness. Throughout the episode, I've created questions for you to test your knowledge, so I'll pause for a few seconds after each question for you to see if you are utterly the best at sea otter trivia. I wanted to dedicate this episode to a special sea otter I had the pleasure of working with as a pup, Taslina. Taz was an orphaned northern sea otter stranded in Alaska and was rescued by the Alaska Sea Life Center in 2019. Because sea otter pups require extensive care and also are heavily dependent on their mother to essentially learn how to otter, Orphan sea otters cannot be released back into the wild, with the exception of otters at Monterey Bay Aquarium, and they will serve as ambassadors for their species as at an accredited zoo or aquaria. Taz now resides at the Vancouver Aquarium, and I was lucky enough to see her all grown up when I did my externship there this past month. I can report that she is still being her mischievous self and keeping her otter buddies and trainers on their toes. Alright, so let's dive right into the episode. Sea otters, or Anhydra lutris, belong to the family Mustelididae, which includes other amazing animals like our other otter species, weasels, minks, badgers, wolverines, and ferrets. Now this leads us to our first question of the episode. Mustelids share a close ancestor with which other marine mammal group? The answer is pinnipeds. Interestingly, there have been two different hypotheses about the relationship between mustelids and pinnipeds, one being a monophyletic view where all three pinniped families share a single common ancestor, with that being ursids or bears, with the next closest link being to mustelids, or a diphyletic view where pinnipeds originate from two separate lineages, where the odoriids, your sea lions and fur seals, and the otobinids, walruses, share an origin with ursids, but phocids, or your true earless seals, have a separate origin that is shared with mustelids, like our sea otters. Sea otters are divided into three different subspecies based primarily on the location in the Pacific Ocean. There's the southern sea otters, also known as the California sea otters, because they are found along the coast of parts of California. The northern sea otters, which are found in the coastal waters from Washington up all the way along Canada's western coastline and into Alaska. And these subspecies of otters may also be seen in the coast of Oregon, but sadly the population in Oregon became extinct in the early 1900s from hunting. And then lastly, you have the western Pacific or Russian sea otters, which you probably guessed are found in the western part of the Pacific along the coast of Russia and in Japan. Now, one thing that all these subspecies have in common is that they are coastal species, meaning they are not going to venture too far from the coastline. While this may provide more opportunities for us to see these adorable animals in their natural habitat, this close proximity to humans and land can also play a big impact on their susceptibility to anthropogenic threats and certain diseases linked to runoff. But we'll talk more about that later on in the episode. While sea otters certainly have gained popularity from their undeniable cuteness, 
sea otters as a whole are listed as endangered under the IUCN red list, and unfortunately their population level continues to decline. Originally, the sea otter's decreasing population was linked to hunting and the fur trade in the 18th and 19th century, as this species was significantly sought out for their uniquely thick fur. While thankfully that is not the case in today's world, sea otters still face many other problems that impact their population. Now, saving the sea otters is even more important because of the species' relationship with its ecosystem, which brings us to our second question of the episode. Why are sea otters so important to the health of their local ecosystem? It's because sea otters are keystone species. Sea otters exert this top-down pressure on their ecosystem because of their consumption of prey, with the most notable being the predation of sea urchins. Sea urchins graze on kelp, so with sea otters' predation of sea urchins, this allows kelp forests to thrive in the presence of sea otters. This absolute incredible relationship allows for sea otters to essentially keep the ecosystem in balance and maintains more diversity in the coastal habitats. Plus, that means you get to see even more sea otter pups wrapped in kelp at the surface as their moms hunt, which is certainly an utterly adorable sight. On top of them being a keystone species, sea otters also serve as a sentinel species for the health of the nearshore ecosystems, meaning that their population levels can help serve as a marker for the overall health of the ecosystem that they live in. Sea otter is about 4 feet long, or about 1.2 meters for any metric system fans, I'm talking about you Canada, and they weigh roughly between 50 to 100 pounds, or 23 to 45 kilograms, with males often being larger and the northern sea otter subspecies being larger than its southern relatives. Sea otters spend almost their entire life in the water, but most often stay in relatively shallow waters, as I talked about them primarily sticking close to the shoreline. Most of the time, otters stay underwater for only a few minutes and usually dive in shallow waters around 60 feet deep, or 18 meters if you're a Canadian otter, but they have a huge lung capacity, approximately two and a half times that of similarly sized land mammal. Sea otters are the smallest marine mammal in North America and are one of the only marine mammals without blubber, the other blubberless friend being polar bears. While not having blubber eliminates some threats, like bioaccumulation of chemical contaminants such as polychlorinated biphenyls, or PCBs, this certainly serves as a disadvantage for sea otters for thermoregulation. This is where the sea otter's fur plays a critical role. Sea otters have the densest fur of any animal. They have up to 1 million hairs per square inch, so they really cram in a lot of hair into a small piece of real estate. Sea otters have both guard hairs and under hairs, and these layers have a unique adaptation that's important for thermoregulation. Their hairs have these cuticle scales that interlock with each other, which helps trap this layer of air below the under hairs and above the skin to form a hydrophobic wall, in a sense, to impede water from contacting the skin. This trapping of air is critical for this species to maintain an appropriate core body temperature by preventing conductive heat loss from the contact with cold water. Without this complex arrangement, sea otters can become very susceptible to changes in thermoregulation and life-threatening hypothermia. Now, pups have a different pelage than adults. Pups' pelt is different from adults to help them be more buoyant in the water, but they will begin to shed this coat around three months of age. Now, the specialized fur requires some extreme maintenance, which means otters do spend a lot of their time grooming. Sea otters can spend about four to six hours grooming, so while this makes for some wicked episodes of cuteness, these otters are doing this for more than just to always be camera ready. 
This is also behavior that takes some practice. So moms have to groom their pups for them until they learn how to do it on their own. So shout out to all those Seattle moms for that huge commitment. Seattle's also have another pretty nifty feature about their coat, which brings us to question number three. What other adaptation do sea otters have that helps them stay resourceful, especially when it comes to eating? Hopefully you guys put it together that a pretty cool feature of their fur is that it comes with pockets. It's like a girl's dream finally came true to have a fashionable look and actually have somewhere to put their phone and wallet. These pouches are located in the axillary region, so essentially in their armpits. Now, while sea otters could certainly steal more than just their hearts and snag your phone or wallet to stash in their pouches, their pockets are most often used to hold tools to, that they use to crack open food or even for storing food itself. And super cool that sea otters are one of the few species who actually use tools in their daily life. So with that somewhat segue to food, let's chat about a sea otter's diet. Sea otters have a crazy high metabolism, which in turn means that they need to eat a lot of food to sustain their increased energy demand. In fact, sea otters must consume about 25 to 30% of their body weight in prey each day in order to match this daily demand. To relate it to wildlife rehab, this means your job when it comes to sea otter pups is essentially to be a food dispenser and a hairstylist because these kiddos want all the foods and all the attention. Basically, it's an endless cycle of eat, groom, sleep, repeat. Oh, and screaming. Lots of screaming. A sea otter's diet can be comprised of numerous invertebrates like sea urchins, clams, crabs, and mussels, as well as fish for the northern sea otter subspecies. While sea otter's diet can consist of hundreds of different prey items, the bulk of their diet often consists of only a select few prey species. Which this brings us to question number four, folks. What is the reasoning behind why many otters feed on only a handful of prey items when food is plentiful, even though their dietary range can be fairly large? Well, just like us folks, sea otters have favorite foods too. Sea otters learn to hunt from their mothers, so pups can adapt different strategies for eating or develop some specific favorite prey items based on what they learn. Certainly geographic location could shape a dietary preference too, but this cultural aspect related to diet is pretty interesting to see. This learned dietary preference may also play into why certain subpopulations of sea otters are more affected by certain diseases too, if their desired prey item is related to the pathogenesis or the development of a disease. Now in terms of reproduction, sea otters are, are sexually reproductive year-round and can pup at any time of the year, but seasonal spikes in pupping are seen. For the northern sea otters, peak season tends to be in the spring and early summer, but for the southern sea otters, peak pupping is more commonly seen in the winter between January to March. Now sea otters have yet another cool adaptation, and this one relates to reproduction, so it's time for question number five. What reproductive ability do sea otters have related to pregnancy? And I'll give you a hint, pinnipeds and bears have this ability too. So the ability I was thinking of is embryonic diapause, or delayed implantation. This phenomenon is regulated by numerous factors, including maternal hormones and photoperiod, and is thought to allow for pregnancy and birth to occur in periods where the mom and the offspring will be the most successful. During embryonic diapause, the embryo begins dividing at a normal rate, but then around the blastocyst stage very early in gestation, the embryo's growth rate slows substantially and can remain that way for months. Then, in response to physiologic stimuli, the embryo's growth in some respect becomes reactivated and will subsequently become implanted into the uterus. 
This delayed implantation creates a varying gestation length for sea otters of 4 to 12 months, but most commonly gestation is going to be around that 7 months long. Sea otters most often only give birth to one offspring, and as described somewhat earlier in the episode, moms dedicate a lot of energy and time into raising their pups and teaching them how to survive. This is also another reason why you can see sea otter pups that are abandoned or orphaned are extremely unlikely to ever be able to survive in the wild without those critical skills like foraging and grooming. Alright, so let's switch now to talk about the diseases and threats that sea otters face. Of course, like many other wild animals, sea otters are affected by natural predation. Predatory animals like sharks and killer whales may feed on sea otters in their environment, or could also be responsible for injuries that leave the sea otter susceptible to other fatal diseases or outcomes. And as I talked about earlier, because of the importance of sea otter's coat and their high metabolism, sea otters are prone to hypothermia, low core body temperature, and hypoglycemia, or low blood glucose, or when factors impact their ability to eat or groom. Unfortunately, though, some of the biggest threats that sea otters face are anthropogenic in origin. Sea otters can fall victim to boat strikes or fishing line entanglement, which could drown or severely injure or debilitate sea otters. Fishing line can lead to consequences like capture myopathy, resulting in significant muscle exertion in response to entanglement, causing muscle damage or necrosis and hypothermia, or perhaps severe secondary infections like osteomyelitis, or in other words, a bone infection, similar to a sea otter named Zippy with secondary osteomyelitis from fishing line entanglement that was rescued by the Alaska Sea Life Center not too long ago. In addition to the physical threat that fishing lines or nets serve, fishing industries themselves, especially invertebrate fishing, creates this competition with fishermen for food. This could lead to direct effects like starvation or possible indirect effects where the food stress could put them at high susceptibility to disease or even force the sea otters to adapt to a different prey item that may be a vessel for disease transmission. Oil spills can also lead to numerous risks for sea otters. Oil itself on the sea otter's fur is a major risk as this significantly alters the fur's ability to maintain thermoregulation and protect against major heat loss, putting these otters at high risk for hypothermia. Additionally, the ingestion of oil contaminants can lead to a substantial GI, hepatic, or neurologic disease, which could severely compromise the individual or be directly fatal. In addition, human-related factors such as habitat destruction, climate change, and ocean acidification can all impact a sea otter's ability to survive. And even if these factors themselves are not the direct cause of death, these anthropogenic threats can also serve as stressors that make sea otters more susceptible to disease. Protozoal diseases are one of the bigger causes of mortality in sea otters, especially in the southern sea otter subspecies. Protozoa are unicellular eukaryotes, and the two main protozoal players in sea otters are Toxoplasma gondii and Sarcocystis neurona. Both these parasites are highly capable of causing encephalitis, or inflammation and disease in the brain and central nervous system, similar to the disease equine protozoa myeloencephalitis, or EPM, which is caused by Sarcocystis neurona that we learned about in vet school with horses. Disseminated infections of Toxoplasma gondii or Sarcocystis neurona are not uncommon either in sea otters, and often lead to tissue cysts or disease within multiple different organs like the heart, muscle, liver, and so on. However, most individuals with normal functioning immune systems do not show overt disease and can handle these infections, meaning they remain asymptomatic. But when individuals are immunocompromised for whatever reason, such as from anthropogenic stressors or concurrent disease, these infections can be fatal. Or tissue cysts within the body from previous exposure can essentially become reactivated and lead to severe and significant disease. 
Now, sea otters, like many other marine mammals, serve as intermediate hosts for these protozoa, but both Toxoplasma gondii and Sarcosystis neurona have specific definitive hosts, which leads me to question number six. Which mammalian species serves as the definitive host for Toxoplasma gondii, and which mammal is the definitive host for Sarcosystis neurona? Well, the answer is felids, both domestic and wild, for Toxoplasma gondii, and opossums for Sarcosystis neurona. Being a definitive host means that these mammals are the only species that supports the sexual reproduction of these protozoa. Therefore, the intermediate hosts, like our sea otters, do not serve as an organism for which the protozoa can reproduce, but certainly can fall victim to the significant damage these parasites do to the host tissues. Now, in veterinary school, we also hear about Toxoplasma gondii with the concern for pregnant women who have not been previously exposed to Toxoplasma and then become infected. In these women, with no previous exposure, there can be a risk for abnormal fetal development and fetal disease, and precautions should be taken to mitigate this risk. Now, this does not mean that pregnant women need to give up their cats, so please don't give up your kitty cat at home. But if you are a pregnant woman who does not have antibodies against Toxoplasma gondii, then certainly try to avoid cleaning litter boxes yourself as the eggs or the oocysts of Toxoplasma are shed in the cat's feces. With the definitive host of protozoa being terrestrial mammals, it certainly brings up the question as to how sea otters as marine mammals are getting infected. Well, unfortunately, the oocyst or the eggs of these protozoa can last in the environment for months or even up to years, and terrestrial runoff or contamination of coastal waters can lead to the spread of these terrestrial pathogens into the marine ecosystems. Besides the direct ingestion of oocysts themselves in contaminated water, these eggs may also become concentrated and transmitted through filter-feeding marine invertebrates. This serves as a huge risk for sea otters specifically, as the majority, if not all, of their diet consists of marine invertebrates. This is a route and infection known as predation of peritonic host, and is a big reason as to why sea otters are a marine mammal that is highly susceptible to the infection with Toxoplasma gondii and Sarcosystis neurona. Another heavy hitter when it comes to morbidity and mortality in sea otters is due to harmful algal blooms and demolic acid. Certain harmful algal bloom species can produce biotoxins, which can bioaccumulate in the environment or within prey items like shellfish and foraging fish, and can be detrimental to the health of sea otters as well as many other marine mammals. Demoic acid is a neurotoxin and one of the major biotoxins produced by these harmful algal blooms. Now this biotoxin is a little different from the more famous biotoxin related to the Florida red tide, as that biotoxin is brevetoxin, produced by the dinoflagellant K. breves. But both these increasingly prevalent biotoxins showcase how ocean waters are changing in response to climate change, ocean acidification, and anthropogenic factors. Demoic acid is a neurotoxin that's produced by the Pseudonychia species and is linked to mortalities in sea otters, namely the southern sea otter population, and have also impacted other marine mammals like your cetaceans and pinnipeds. How demoic acid works is by agonizing glutamate receptors, or in other words, mimicking glutamate's action as an excitatory neurotransmitter. Glutamate primarily acts in the central nervous system and can cause acute onset of neurologic or gastrointestinal signs, such as vomiting, disorientation, lethargy, seizures, and unfortunately, death. Now, demoic acid has also been identified as an important risk factor for another type of disease in steatters, so this means we've got question number seven coming for you. 
Demolic acid has been identified as a risk factor for the development of what disease in sea otters? Your hint is that the disease commonly is seen in giant and large breed dogs and was something that was discussed on the podcast in episode two, Marine Mammal Rehab, which in my completely unbiased opinion, of course, I highly recommend you check out if you haven't. The disease I'm talking about is dilated cardiomyopathy, or DCM, which is a specific type of heart disease characterized by the dilation or the widening of the ventricles, which subsequently leads to compromised cardiac function and eventual heart failure. Therefore, demoic acid itself could lead to mortality in sea otters or set them up for the development of significant heart disease down the line. Two additional notable diseases impacting sea otter populations are acanthocephalin parasites and streptococcus infections. The acanthocephalin parasite Cornosoma anhydra uses crustaceans and fish as intermediate hosts, putting sea otters at a risk of ingesting these parasites because of their prey selection. While effects on the host are not often clinically significant, these infections can lead to substantial impacts on the affected sea otter's ability to digest and absorb nutrients, and therefore impair the ability to support their high metabolism, leading to nutritional stress. This parasite is prevalent in southern sea otter populations, and it appears that it impacts certain females that are more sig- significantly related, suggesting a predisposition for encanthocephalins with females of lower genetic diversity. There's also concern that diet specialization related to maternal choices in diet is also implemented in these infections, as the pups begin to learn from their mom, and they will then continue to select food sources that have higher prevalence of acanthocephalin parasites. For northern sea otters more specifically, beta-hemolytic streptococci have been newly recognized and documented now as a major cause of death. This has also been referred to as the strep syndrome, where these beta-hemolytic streptococci are often linked to breaks in the skin and then can lead to septicemia or bacterial spread within the bloodstream, and most notably infectious endocarditis, or the inflammation of the endocardium of the heart. This endocarditis often results in masses on the left side of the heart and subsequently can lead to left-sided congestive heart failure or infarctions. Now, while I'd love to go into more about diseases in sea otters like nasal mites or hemorrhagic gastroenteritis, I think I need to cut myself off. But if anyone has any questions about sea otters in general or the diseases they face, please don't hesitate to reach out to me through email at walkonthewildsidepodcast at gmail.com or through direct message on Facebook or our Instagram page. As always, thank you so much for listening in, and I hope you were utterly impressed with this month's segment of Speak Up for a Species here on A Walk in the Wild Side, a veterinary podcast. Thank you everyone for listening in, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For updates on upcoming episodes and additional information on all things wildlife, zoo, and exotics, follow us on Instagram at walkonthewildside underscore vetpodcast and like us on Facebook. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you join us for the next episode of A Walk in the Wild Side.